Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, Mr. Uh, Dave Martino. Hello, hello. Yeah, it's quiet today. <laughs> yeah. Now it's the day after the day after the hangover after your birthday. Yes. So now it's quiet. It's it's very quiet. Soup. Very tea. quiet. Soup. Tea. Right? Yeah. Ice. Yeah, hangover. It's tough at your age. You know? <laughs> oh, it is. I mean, it's there's got to be a point where you stop celebrating birthdays. I mean, I did. No, no. I, no. Oh, please. Come I on. did back in, when I was 40. You know, I just make it 39 every year, just like Jack Benny. <laughs> Again, nobody knows <laughs> Again, who Jack Benny Jack... is. <laughs> no, I'm too that. old. And everyone's like, who's who's this Jack Benny fellow? You know? Nobody has any history anymore. No, they don't. No. He's not on TikTok. He doesn't exist. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. He didn't appear at the Grammys. So No. <laughs> I, 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 he can't be real. You know. <laughs> That's great. Anyway. Um, well, let's see. Now we've got a returning author today. Um, he's been around the block several times. Um, and this time he's gone back into, uh, the fiction writing. I think it's been 20 years. I think it was, uh, it's quite a while ago. It's, um, maybe not quite. I don't know. But anyway, let's talk to him. So, Mr. Ron Francel, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, Al. Dave, don't worry about the age thing. <laughs> he doesn't. I try not to. No, I don't. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't. But he pays for it, you know. Um, yes. You know. My birthday, I'm in bed at nine. Jeez, I don't know. Um, so what's what's going on with you now, Ron? So the last time we talked, you were doing true crime. 
you've been doing tr- true crime for a while now. So now you've you've done fiction before, and now you've gone back into it. Um, why the why the flip back? Well, you know, a, a good question. Uh, you know, because we've talked about them. Books like Shadow Man and The Darkest Night are, are the product of kind of an old school research and investigation. Um, I'm an old school journalist. Uh, I, I believe in firsthand, up close sensory experiences that tell me everything I want to tell a reader. I write narrative nonfiction, and and so I'm telling these true stories um, with some tools from the novelist's toolbox, like foreshadowing and character development and things like that. And it's an experience for the reader that relies heavily on the tiniest details of what I can see and hear and taste and so on. I can only get that from being having my boots on the ground in the places where it happened, talking to the people who were maybe lived through it. Um, that's that's a richness that set my true crime apart from some more formulaic stuff. Then comes COVID. <laughs> Suddenly in lockdown, I can't book a hotel room. I can't dine out in a restaurant. I can't get on an airplane. I can't go into a courthouse or a library. And I certainly can't talk to all those people that I need to talk to for my true crime. I locked myself in my office with 40 years of experience in journalism and true crime storytelling. And I imagined this new book, Death Row, uh, as you pointed out, it's been a little more than 20 years since I've written fiction. Uh, so it, it was a little bit of a change, but it was made necessarily made necessary by COVID. Right. You know, the, the, the thing that I always find curious, because when you write true crime, you are, like you were saying, out meeting people, you're, you're going through the story, um, sometimes through the eyes of, of victims' families, and sometimes uh, even through the, the criminals or the accused. And uh, there's a lot of real people, and you have to try to yeah. cover, cover it all, or as completely as you can to make it a, a full story. But when you get into fiction, um, those people aren't real. And uh, we talk to a lot of fiction writers, and uh, quite a few of them will talk about how they hear voices in the head and they'll see their <laughs> characters, and it's like watching a movie. And they have these elaborate descriptions of, you know, of their creation to write a book. And I always find that weird because I've always stuck with nonfiction, so that just sort of seems kind of bizarre. But how is it for you? Because now you you've done both. Um, is there a, is there a big difference in in your character design? Um, yes, uh, obviously for the reasons you just said. Fiction often starts with the question, "What if?" Uh, true crime starts with, "What is?" <laughs> and so you're adjusting to that reality all the time. And I've heard a lot of writers say that they carry on conversations with their characters. I, I think it's last study I saw of that. It was, you know, more than half. It's like two thirds of the authors say that their characters speak to them while they're writing. 
um, or can act independently. When I hear a fellow writer say stuff like that, I usually take a subtle step backward. Uh, <laughs> you know, hearing voices in your head is a symptom mm. of schizophrenia. And yeah. I just don't want to take any chances. <laughs> But I, I, I do admit that I behave on my character's behalf. I, I think about it this way. We all imagine hearing the voices of other people when we think about how an argument might have gone differently or how someone we know is likely to respond to the news we're about to give them, right? Uh, that's just normal. In my case, my imaginary characters live the life that I give them and no more. I'm sometimes surprised by what my subconscious produces, but I'm not possessed or surrounded um, or even dependent on my characters. I don't feel their physical presence. I, I don't smell them. I don't hear them. I don't, you know, I don't want to touch them for the most part. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind who's in charge. So, uh, but the fact is, yeah, it is a little different because, like I say, when you go through a lifetime, not just of true crime, but as a journalist, you, you have this kind of driving ethical sense about the the truth and fairness. And then suddenly you're writing a novel. It, it's different. <laughs> I mean, it, you, you, the truth and fairness are what you define them to be. Uh, for that story. So, no, I, I will say that this, that when I write my true crime, I'm trying to employ some of those techniques of fiction writing, like I talked about foreshadowing and character development and things like that. So, so I already am writing in a story form that's familiar. It's just odd when I come up against a problem and in my true crime, I would say, well, this is a true, this is a, a problem in truth. I have to go find out what's real, where in fiction, you're saying, uh, I'm in a corner here. Oh, well, I'll just make something up, you know, so it is different. It is different. Well, at least you're not waking up in the middle of the desert one night and bloody hands and a shovel and hearing voices. So that's, that's kind of a good thing. That's a relief. Well, that one time, you know, <laughs> you keep bringing that up. Well, you know, uh, yeah, I think it's an important thing you need to resolve. <laughs> <laughs> but that's uh, that's a different story. Well, I think the, the other thing in fiction too is the fiction, in a sense, like maybe maybe I'm overstating, but I think that um, a lot of people in North America, period. A lot of us are probably feeling that the you know there isn't a really strong sense of of good justice being applied in real life, you know like there's you know how many times do you hear stories of uh, you know someone that's done some horrendous crime and they get four years or something and meanwhile someone with pot in their car has got twenty years like we hear a lot of these yeah. stories and yeah. so I think there's a lot of times people feel well there's no justice. And a lot of times this is true because, like, you know, you've written true crime, you follow it, and, and there are times when the bad person didn't really get what they deserved and, and for different reasons. And um, at least with fiction, 
you can have a sense of justice. You can have a complete ending, or it, it may not be tidy, but at least there's a, you know, a, a sense of accomplishment in a sense. Yeah, sure. And and I think you're right. I think justice exists more than the media, and particularly the internet media, would lead us to believe. Um, it, it, it's I go back to my journalism training. Uh, we don't cover the uh, hundred thousand airplanes that took off safely today. Right. We're writing about the one that didn't. And I think the same is probably true in questions about justice uh, or in crime in general, really. We are not writing about the guys who got exactly what was coming to them uh, for doing a crime that probably was a lot like the last time that crime happened. Um, it's just not news anymore. But right. when when an Idaho um, a batch of Idaho uh, co-eds are killed and the killer disappears um, a, a nation is riveted uh, it's it, it's slightly unusual I mean you think of crimes like the Richard Speck murders in Chicago in the 60s where he murdered the nurses student nurses um, it, it, it kind of echoes that but it's a different kind of crime. It's not what I would call a, a garden variety murder. And so we get riveted to it. And when it, the cops are a little slow to nail down who it might be, uh, we start to think the cops are outmatched. Or when five cops beat a man to death in Memphis, we... Um, we tend to, to, to project that brutality on all cops. It's just not true. And in, yeah. in my true crime, I've written a lot about these dogged detectives who can't sleep at night because of cases that are haunting them. Uh, and now in death row, um, I'm writing about a cop who's retired and wants wants nothing more than to just fade away and and live out the rest of his life and not come into contact with too many humans. Uh, when he gets dragged into a case and he has the ability to say no, but it's something inside him that's driving him that says, this is what you do. This is, this is kind of your purpose in life. This is, you're good at it. So see if you can help. And that's the kind of detective that I've written about in real life. And some bits and pieces of all those real de detectives that I've written about might have found their way into him. Yeah, I would say, um, I, you know, I would ask, like, who who was the inspiration for this or did you have one? You know, and that's kind of a, a touchy. Uh, it could be a combination of a lot of people, I guess. It was a combination in his case. It was a combination of a lot of people. Um, and I, I, I can't really say it was one person. I mean, I, I have his look uh, suggests one guy. Uh, his manner suggests another. So he, he's a kind of uh, pastiche of, of, of a lot of different people. And, and, and 
you know, fictional characters are kind of like that. I mean, you know, creating a character can touch readers, um, and, but it's harder to do than it looks. You know, yeah. so so ordinary people aren't always perfect for fiction, but um, I want readers for a few hours at least to consider that people, characters like Woodrow Bell, the hero of Death Row, and the old guys on Death Row, uh, I want them to be considered as secret friends. I, I want them to be a little melancholy when the readers put the book down because they don't want those guys to go away. Those are the kinds of characters I'm trying to create. They're all unique. I'm, I'm proud to say that every one of the old guys who make up this little coffee club called Death Row uh, know exactly who Jack Benny was. <laughs> yeah, how could they not? I yeah, mean, that's right. Know, that's uh, right. Perfect. I was just watching. <laughs> I've been watching him last week. So, <laughs> my, uh, what, how do you get into the mindset then? Um, because you're not, you know, hanging out with these people. So, and and you got to make them sound real, and you got to have real actions and reactions and and the way people talk and that the details have got to be pretty um you know fit who the character is and what situation they're in and, and the reactions have got to be good you know otherwise people lose you know interest or they don't they don't believe a character so much so um i can see getting into the cops character in a sense because you've dealt with probably a lot of cops over right. the years, right. a lot of policing and stuff like that. that. That sort of fits, and you can draw on your experience. But I wonder with um, some of the filler characters or some of the other ones that y you wouldn't really relate to because you're not them, and you haven't right. really how, – how do you fill in their conversations? Well, let me let me first start by saying describing this a little so the listeners understand what I'm talking about when I answer your question. The, the death row is a mystery, and it's about a, a retired Denver homicide detective who who goes to the mountains and wants to be alone. He wants to serve out the rest of his life uh, quietly and and with as little disruption as possible. When he is brought into this case by a friend, a pre, a retired priest, his closest friend. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't want to do it, but part, part of it is that he doesn't have the resources that he once had as a Denver homicide detective. Um, he, he doesn't have the high tech forensics. He doesn't have, uh, the team at work. He doesn't even have the support of the local cops who could help him by answering a few questions. Uh, anybody who's been a journalist knows that local cops don't want to share any information of, with anybody. So what he does have is this little coffee club of old guys in their 70s and 80s who get together every morning um, like this happens every in every little town across America, uh, and they solve the problems of the world. They poke fun at each other. They uh, are old guys, and they they sense um, that that um, maybe the world that maybe the important part of life has already passed, and they're just waiting around. And and as we some of us know, 
um, sometimes guys get older and they start to turn invisible. Nobody sees them anymore. And so that's what we have. And, and so we have our, our retired homicide detective, Woodrow Bell, his best friend, Father Bert, and then five or six old guys in, in this coffee club. And they call themselves Deaf Row, not death as in dying, but deaf as in I, I can't hear you. <laughs> deaf yeah. Row. Okay. So to your question, uh, Father Bert is a great example. I'm not a priest. I'm not a Catholic. Uh, uh, I had to go and find somebody who could talk to me um, fairly frankly about some of the characteristics of this guy who I imagine to be kind of an unorthodox priest. He's he's full of life and he's got these quirky behaviors. He hunts, he drinks, he's mildly profane. And he's he's as rebellious as he is faithful. And that rebellion has been why he was assigned to this dead end parish in the mountains. He and and Bell share a lot of characteristics, uh, although Father Bert tends to be um, uh, Bell's uh, conscience um, and, and appeals to that. But again, I'm not Catholic, and I wanted to know how far we could go to create a believable character who has some of those quirks that I was talking about and not be a cartoon. So uh, there you go. I have to go find somebody. And one of the hardest things for me in in writing fiction was finding somebody who will play along. I'd imagine it would be easy to find a priest who could tell you no good priest would do any of the things that you imagine. (laughs) (laughs) And so the game is over that we can't play. I need to find one who says, okay, well now here's how he might justify that. And here's, here's what scripture says that might justify that. And here's what the Pope thinks that might justify that. Um, so it, it, a lot of that, when I'm dealing with people outside of my own personal experience, I, I have to go find somebody and I have to ask some really weird questions. But a writer is a collector of all these little artifacts that make us human. You know, we we uh, we're we're always observing. We're always eavesdropping, certainly in a lifetime as a journalist and a crime writer. I've seen some of the best and the worst we people have to offer um and that's where these guys all come from you know i'm wondering too if if you don't hear voices and i'm one of those crazy writers who does (laughs) okay i'm never 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 be alone with that (laughs) no 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 take a step back but uh i'm just wondering you know how do you uh, create dialogue are you pulling from conversations that you've heard are you uh, talking about being a collector of things? Is that is that how you do it? Do you have some process that you go through? Not really. I mean, in the sense that I don't have conversations with my characters, but like I say, I behave on their behalf. So I can drop into a conversation um, and and know the kinds of things that would normally be said. There, there are many conversations in Death Row one is um, 
our detective and our priest are in the priest's old uh, decrepit Bronco and they're going up a, a scary mountain road and they're having a conversation and the, 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 the detective is the passenger and he's a very bad passenger. He, he doesn't like <laughs> putting anything in anybody else's control, especially steering wheels. Um, <laughs> and so so their conversation is is colored by his discomfort. Um, the, the the priests, you know, I don't know, maybe faith in in God uh, in the in the event that we crash and die. Uh, but <laughs> but there's this conversation, and and at the beginning of the conversation, when I'm at the beginning of the writing of the conversation. I know I have to achieve something. I need to move them to a, a different spot physically. They, they're going to drive there. But I also need to get them, I need to, uh, to deliver some information to the reader during this, as well as giving some flesh to their, to their characters, to showing my control freak detective who's grumpy uh and to showing my my priest who has something else in mind and and probably isn't keeping his eye on the road hmm. so I, I i i have to sit back like you would and say okay what what's likely to happen on such a journey uh, how's he likely to feel? How's the other guy likely to feel? How's that likely to come out? And especially if they're both men in their seventies or eighties, what's the kind of language they're likely to use with each other? It's been, it was an interesting thing I, uh, that I wanted to come out in the book. And I hope it did is, um, old men like that don't put their arms around each other and express their affection mm. the way maybe women would the way men in that certain age express their affection is through joking and sarcasm and poking and making fun mm. uh so there's a good deal of this book that's tied up in that kind of humor um and again putting putting flesh on their um literary bones i guess when you when you're writing this book um i i, I if i go back to true crime and and even your journalism you're trying to convey a point to the reader right you're 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 hoping that they take something from your reporting they learn something about the victim maybe or something about the situation yes um, and even in true crime books, you're you're trying to, you know, get the 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 real story out so people understand it. Do, do you find that when you're doing a fiction book like this, is is there a subtext or a meaning that you're hoping that a reader would get after they read it, besides all the entertainment or the the crime itself, like your your mystery? But is there something else underneath? I think so. I I think. If uh, this death row is my 19th book. And I think that if I go back to my motivations on my very first no book, which was a novel, 
a literary novel back in the late 90s. Um, I, I very specifically had a message that I thought I wanted to get across. Uh, I equally quickly learned that um, it doesn't matter what I want you to take away. You might. You might get it. But everybody has their own interpretation of every piece of art. Um, I, I'd imagine that Picasso had something in mind for most of his paintings and was probably surprised when people came up to him and said, oh, well, yeah, that's a cow juggling a beach ball. Uh, I, I have surrendered. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, 19 books later, to the idea that, yes, I want there to be something of value to a reader, something that sticks long past the, the book going back on the shelf. Uh, I'm just, and, and I might even have an idea about what I would like it to be, but I'm satisfied to know if that I'm, I'm satisfied by them taking away any message. Having any message is better than closing the book and saying, well, that was, that was brain candy. That, 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 that was fine. What's next. And it doesn't stick. My favorite books um, and my favorite thoughts about books and readers are the ones where a reader has said to me, I'm here I am 10 years later and I can't shake that character. And, and that's important to me. I introduce them to somebody worth knowing. And, and placing humor in places, do you, I mean, that's got to be timed like a comedian, right? You know? Uh, especially in a crime story involving children, I would imagine. Yeah, in um, in this in this case, the the humor has um, has a role, of course. Um, I, you know, in, in the crimes in Death Row are so ghastly that uh, a lot of the humor is intended to give the reader a, a kind of an emotional break from the tension from the heavy mood that that's being painted otherwise uh also comedy can intensify the tragedy that is about to happen so i i saw a lot of uses for it there not only painting these guys realistically in some cases i use lines that i have heard my fathers say or my father-in-law or some old guy that that was just hilarious but you know we all like to smile and we tend to like people who make us smile so humor i hope endears us to these old guys i want readers to like them i want them to care about what happens to these these old guys um and when you care about somebody the stakes become clear and they become personal and the story becomes meaningful, getting back to that exact thing that we just talked about, leaving the reader with something to think about. Well, I'm wondering, with, with guys in their 70s and 80s joking around, um, you know, they're from a different time. I'm, I'm 52, and I'm from a different time, so I'm wondering, uh, do, do you worry about uh, self-censoring, or do you worry about political correctness? Uh, do you need to self-censor with these characters and, and uh, their band? You know, uh, I worry about it. I, <laughs> I don't do it enough, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think that uh, I worry about it in the sense that I don't want them saying something that I just 
I think is awful, mainly because I I want people to to find them endearing. Uh, I don't want them standing up and using the N word or um, you know anything any hot button thing like that. Uh, that that is going to turn off a reader. That doesn't mean that it doesn't come out in some ways, that these are conservative guys who've lived a, in a different time, doing different things and expressing themselves in different ways. But I don't, I, and, uh, unless in a future story uh, involving these guys, race is an issue i can't see them standing up and and uh, hollering you know the n-word or anything i i so in a sense the answer is yeah i a little bit but it's just the story doesn't need to go there and uh, now that said i'm 66 myself um and i uh, you know there I occasionally say things that people say, well, you can't say that. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I wasn't aware I couldn't say that. Mm -hmm. So maybe that happens, but, but nothing, nothing horrible. Yeah. I get accused of that all the time. I mean, I, I turn 60 (laughs) and I say things all the time on air and get letters. Well, emails. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I don't know. You know, I just, um, certainly my, again, you, you know, the intention isn't there to hurt someone and the intention isn't to be, um, mean or make someone feel bad. So I think that's kind of how I address it. It's, it's, you know, if you, if you make a mistake, you apologize or if someone corrects you on something, then okay, now I understand, you know, I don't know. Um, and that said, though, I, and Dave makes a good point. Um, I think we live in um, hypersensitive times. Uh, I posted a thing in my social media about the Chinese spy balloon, and I, I'm just waiting for somebody <laughs> to come back and say that that was an, yeah. uh, an anti-Asian yeah. uh, thing or something. It, it, just because the word Chinese is in there doesn't mean this is commentary on Asians. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and yet I think we've seen that very thing happen. Uh, so, uh, if you live in hypersensitive times, I guess you have to be prepared to hear from hypersensitive people mm. about uh, offenses that might or might not be there. I guess that remains to be seen. Death Row comes out on February 14th, next Tuesday, one week from today. Yeah. Um, and I suppose on Wednesday, I'll be hearing from all the people who think that something one of these guys said went over the line yeah. i don't know yeah we'll get our listeners on that like please let yeah, him, yeah. Let him know right away so he knows right like he, he wants to hear this email just my email there in the uh, notes yeah yeah just do that and uh you know inundate him make sure he understands <laughs> Al sends all his picketers to me. To my yeah, give you Stephen King's email address. Yeah, yeah. Send your complaints to him. Yeah, yeah, Dave. I just send them to me, and I'll give you Dave's address. You can go. Perfect. You know, he likes. I'm used to it. Yeah. Well, that's so. When you take the subject matter, like this is kind of an unsolved. 
crime of, you know, of, of child murder. And so that's a very kind of popular topic, not necessarily child murder, but the unsolved crimes and people trying to solve right, crimes. Right. You know, it seems to be a big trend. Um, what, what got you into this sort of story? Was it based on something that you've experienced before or another crime somewhere that maybe was not solved and stayed with you? There originally, you know, I was I was enchanted by this idea. An elderly friend of mine was telling me one day he lives in Washington State was was telling me about his morning coffee club and that they called themselves death row. And all of a sudden, literally in a flash, in a blink, a story, a story popped into my head about and, and, and I should say the broad strokes of a story because I wanted uh, at that point, there would be a mystery. These guys would help in solving it and they would each have these individual traits and skills uh, that were can that would contribute. When it came time to think of. Okay, where do I place this story? Where, what crime do I explore? I went back to the little town in the Colorado Rockies where I lived when I was a senior writer at the Denver Post. And, and there's this idyllic little town, uh, just perfect. And so I, I kind of transmogrified it into the fictional midnight Colorado. The crime itself was actually inspired. The, the crime in the book was inspired by an, a real life crime where a teenage girl, uh, much like the teenage girl in Death Row, uh, goes missing and nobody ever knows what happens to her. And I think that was about a 30 or 40 year old crime at the time I was living in this little town. But it was still a topic of conversation. Small towns have very long memories. And uh, in this particular case, the, the disappearance of this little girl, they're not little girl, teenage girl, really uh, stuck. It really stuck in the, in the memory and the imagination of this little town. And people still talked about it. So I wanted to use that in death row and now now i've fictionalized some of the details of it um but it was the idea that the disappearance of a teenage girl in a small town is a very different event uh than the disappearance of a teenage girl in a big urban center like new york or denver or la uh, it's not going to stick to the memory. It's not going to be on the front page. The uh, local paper won't do the occasional um, 40 years ago, this girl went missing. There, it, none of that would happen. And the, the comings and goings in a big city that just have, it, it just makes for a different kind of memory. Small towns are different. And so that was a big part of it. I wanted, um, I, I wanted to, to, to explore the kind of, of thing that, um, you know, affects a small town. It affects a close-knit community. And so, really, that's where that all came from. And, uh, of course, in Death Row, 
um, they hurtle toward solving it uh, in real life. That girl was never found. Was that friend um, in Washington, um, Jack Benny? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was Jack Benny's dad. Oh, <laughs> oh just a young, young. His elderly dad. Yeah, his elderly, yeah. yeah. That's another word that doesn't get used, elderly. Elderly no. people don't use. Well, that I could have used. I could have used the words "old farts." I just don't yeah. Know <laughs> you, your 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 listeners might be gentler than that. Oh, da- I doubt it. <laughs> I, I I read some of the emails. No, uh, gentle is not the word I was thinking. But well, that's it. the whole thing. Is that is true? You know, an old town does have. A sense of memory, and maybe it's just because um, small towns have um, less people and they're closer connected. Maybe there's just too many murders in a big city over years. Yeah, you all know? those things. Yeah, all those, and and that has popped up in my true crime. Certainly, my very first true crime, The Darkest Night, is about uh, a crime against two sisters, literally my next door neighbor girls. Um, in a small town in Wyoming where I grew up uh, and and how that affected not only their family, but the, the kids around them and the community, the, the, the small town in general. Um, and I used a lot of that feeling in in death row. Uh, same thing was true in Shadow Man, how the small town of Manhattan, Montana, uh, you know, 50 years later, still considers um, considers the crimes that I describe in that book, the crimes that led to the FBI issuing its very first criminal profile. They still consider that current events. And uh, that's just a reality. And so uh, that was just a reality that I wanted to capture in Death Row, that this small town would um, it, this would be a fresh wound. This would be an uh, uh, an open wound for this town decades later. Do you, do you find the process of writing uh, true crime to fiction is it is it really different? And uh, do you enjoy one better than the other? Uh, in my career, uh, let's see if I can if my 66 year old memory serves me i've written a literary novel a few mysteries now a road trip memoir and more than a dozen true crime books uh i've probably written a thousand newspaper articles three screenplays uh countless blogs uh a couple poems pretty lazy (laughs) (laughs) what i've learned in in that chaos is that each genre has its own unique conventions think of it this way an, a, a news anchor woman a songwriter a poet a film director they're all storytellers they might all have a special affection for language uh, but what about being an anchor woman makes her a good poet what, what about being a filmmaker makes him a natural songwriter? Well, there's not a damn thing. And so it is with writing true crime and crime fiction. Uh, the leap 
might not be that great between, uh, you know, fake and real crime. Uh, but the realms of nonfiction and fiction are completely separate universes. Um, uh, you know, I think in some ways a true crime writer has an easier job. He doesn't have to imagine the plot, the characters, the setting, a message, anything except the structure of the story. Uh, on the other hand, the mystery writer isn't, really constrained by what actually happened and can solve a lot of predicaments by simply imagining a solution. Um, I, I think a big difference comes when you tell a reader up front, this is a true story. Or conversely, this is completely made up. Fiction writers will give an author, I think, a wide berth. They, they suspend their disbelief and they allow the storyteller some leeway between what's likely and what's possible. Um, a nonfiction writer, though, tells you on the cover, this is a true story. So readers don't suspend that disbelief and they don't give permission to be kind of elegantly gaslighted on this you know, they're they're quick to declare the author to be a lying charlatan uh, and throw the book across the room. Um, uh, it's why I think we can love a movie about blue people in a different universe, but be angry with the TV weatherman. Yeah. You know, it, it's what we're prepared to absorb and believe for the sake of being entertained. Um I so I've written both true crime and crime fiction. I can't really declare one is easier than the other. They they're as different to me as writing a history book or a song. They're both hard. If a beginning writer asked me what should she pick, I'd say it doesn't matter. Uh, I'd tell her to become a student of the form and learn everything she can about how it's done. And then the rest is easy. You just sit down at your word processor and let the processor and let the blood ooze from your forehead. <laughs> yeah. Story of story of life of a writer, you know. Exactly. <laughs> Dave, <laughs> am I right? Exactly. <laughs> well, he's insane. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's all true. sorts of stuff going on. Well, that helps. Yeah. Well, like, it doesn't you know, hurt. <laughs> just, he doesn't know what he's doing <laughs> or where he's at, you know, in the story or in real life. So, mm, that's true. There's, there's the choice. Well, and do, do you um do the insane things sort of around in your life, and and things do things affect you in your writing? Are you are you that guy that can't write when there's something stressful going on, or are you just very organized and you can just sit down and nine to five and just pump it out? I, I consider it a job. I, I try to work literally eight hours a day when I'm writing and, and that's can be writing. It can be researching, uh, and it can be longer, but I try a minimum of eight hours a day. I try to treat it like a job. And I think a lot of my, um, my feelings about what's going on around me come from my newspaper days where you had to tune that out. I mean, there was a whole newsroom of people around you and they're clattering and phones are ringing and they're yelling and they're talking and people are moving and you just have to tune that out and focus. 
So I think that part of it uh, has not been somebody asked me recently, well, you know, whether it's fictional or, or true, um, did, did, did you ever get splashed by the darkness of your subjects? I mean, are you affected by that? And I, my answer was something like, you know, 40 years I've compartmentalized my emotions so that I can tell these kinds of stories, whether it's books or newspapers, it doesn't matter. The sight of a dead child, to me, it, it, it touches a deep down part of me. Uh, but the best thing I can do is tell her story. I, I not stand there crying about it. Um, a whole family killed by a drunk driver, their bodies might still be there in the wreckage. That tightens my jaw to the point I think my teeth might break, but weeping would, would make me look away. And if I'm going to tell that story, I can't look away. So I think when I was younger, it was easier to be kind of stoic. Um, I guess I could afford to only worry about the story. Now I'm old. Uh, I know Jack Benny. <laughs> <laughs> I write books about uh, ordinary people <laughs> who shouldn't have died. Uh, but sometimes he died in spectacularly grisly ways. Um, sometimes I want to cry, uh, but I can't without losing some of the spark that I should be putting into words about them and not weeping. So I keep I wrote a blog recently about this in my life it's at my website it's called cry later and because i keep telling myself i'll cry later right now i have to tell this story i'll cry later the problem has been that later really never comes what well, sounds it sounds like you know it's the same thing that uh police and fire and emts have to go through and absolutely have to, have to put up that wall to some extent to be able to get their job done that's right. If you're going to be up to your elbows in blood and gore, if you're going to see things that normal people don't want to see, um, but you have to describe it, uh, you have to be able to compartmentalize uh, the, the, the ghastliness. Um, I did a book a few years ago called Morgue, A Life and Death. I wrote it with one of the world's most renowned medical examiners, Vincent DeMaio. And it was about some of his classic, uh, most fascinating cases. Uh, he exhumed Libby, Lee Harvey Oswald. He, he worked on the Phil Spector murder case. Um, he even rendered an opinion uh, about the death of Vincent Van Gogh. For uh, the time that I was researching that, book i'm i'm literally surrounded by boxes and boxes of morgue and autopsy records and they're filled with photos that nobody really should have to look at um but to me they were just boxes of stuff i had to look through in order to be able to tell the story there are so many people in our world the cops, the firefighters, the medical examiners, uh, the crime writers uh, who do jobs that we don't want to do. And thank God for them.
thank God for morticians, for God's sakes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you could still eat lunch, too, while you're doing Well, <laughs> you know, after a, a day. Yeah. <laughs> Steak on the grill. <laughs> mm. I uh, once was invited to be the only journalist to witness the exhumation of the 1950s pop star, the Big Bopper, J.P. Richardson. And they they brought him out of the ground and took him to a warehouse where uh, after a time they opened the casket and, and, and surprisingly he was in fairly good shape, but it, it still wasn't pretty. And um, yeah, so I spent the day in, in a rather putrid environment looking at things that nobody should have to look at. And when I got home, my wife had, uh, so I, I'm sure it was boiled chicken for dinner. And uh, <laughs> so I went to bed without dinner. <laughs> mm. Oh, yeah, I guess he stopped singing. That, that. <laughs> yeah, in case people don't know, we'll put up who the big bopper was. There you go. Yes. There you go. On the website. Yeah, just well, Chantilly <laughs> Lace. Everybody knows Chantilly Lace. Oh, uh, you think so? <laughs> or Jack Benny. Uh, Jack, yeah, there. Yeah, that's. We'll put him yeah. up too. Yeah, they. Um, are you kidding? Anyway, well, listen. Um, how do people find you? Um, social media website what do you got going on everywhere um like i say first def row is coming out uh it it launches on next tuesday or february 14th whatever that might be when they hear the, your broadcast um i have a website uh, ronfrancel.com i'm on all the social media i invite people to look me up uh, like me, friend me, whatever, whatever turns your crank. Uh, Call your name. <laughs> and, but I love interacting with readers. It's a privilege. You know, we, Dave and I probably spend a lot of our lives dealing with agents and editors and publicists and booksellers and distributors and all kinds of middlemen that stand between us and the readers when really we're, we're doing this for the readers. And right. It's a privilege to to be able to communicate directly with readers. So I invite people, please look me up and join the conversation. Fantastic, and and look for them on TikTok. You're on TikTok too. <laughs> no, I'm not on TikTok. No. Oh well, that's, that's next. That's a just. I have a face for radio. Yeah, me too. <laughs> well, again, it's always a pleasure talking to you, and uh, of course, your new book, Death Row. We'll be out the 14th, and we appreciate you. So, Ron friends, Al, thank you. And well, thank you, Al. Thank you, Dave. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Ron. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, 
hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.